Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for the reminder of the truths that we sung about, Lord, that you do hold us fast. We thank you for that reminder, no matter what situations that we face, we're reminded that you care for us and you keep us till the end. What comfort that brings us. I also pray that as we study your word, uh, that you would give us understanding, uh, that you would continue to, uh, through your word, through the work of the Spirit, conform us to the image of Christ and bring clarity more and more to the understanding of your word so that we may honor you and glorify you in our lives. Be with us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, we live in a culture where a shallow gospel is preached, where a high view of God is virtually non-existent, where a high view of man instead is celebrated, where sin is not preached, where the call to repentance is often excluded from the pulpit. We live in a culture and society where if you have invited Jesus into your life, into your heart, the belief is that you are safe and secure, regardless of whether there is any change or spiritual transformation in your life, regardless of whether there is any fruit. See, such a belief is prominent in American Christianity where if you did an altar call or if you were baptized as a child, regardless of if there's any fruit, you identify as a Christian. Thankfully, we attend a good Bible-believing church. We go to a church that preaches the Bible week in and week out, where we are exposed to God, the one true and living God, we're exposed to a high view of God where the call to repentance is made from the pulpit without fail each and every week. Where the true gospel is preached, where biblical faith is proclaimed, a faith not by works, but a gift from God. And that faith is manifested in good works in the life of the believer. This is what our church preaches, and there are good churches all around that preach this reality as well. However, even in good churches, there may still be some who profess a faith that is not a biblical faith. They may say the right things, they may appear to do the right things, but truly, their life has not been transformed. To borrow John's verbiage, they have not been born again. They don't have the right motivations, they don't have the right desires, there's no true and genuine love for God. There's no desire to truly please him. And sadly, there is still no concern for their salvation because they believe they're saved because they have made a profession of faith. The reality is they have misdiagnosed their true condition. They do not possess the true faith. Rather, they possess a dead faith, a false faith. Let me make it a little bit more personal and direct. If you have professed a faith in Christ, if you have publicly identified with Christ, but there's no transformation in your life, 
then you do not possess a true biblical faith. Your faith is dead. And there's eternal consequences to such a faith. And this is what we'll see this morning as we turn to James. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. We'll be covering these verses this Sunday and next. In the passage before us, James contrasts true faith, true biblical faith, with false faith, a living faith with a dead faith. Let me begin by reading our verses. James 2, verses 14 through 26. We'll be covering 14 through verse 19 this morning. James writes, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if it has no works, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son at the altar, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works, when she received the messengers and, and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James' message to his readers and by extension to us is this. True saving faith manifests itself in good works, whereas professing faith, false faith, devoid of good works, is no faith at all. True saving faith manifests itself in good works, whereas professing faith, a false faith, devoid of good works, is no faith at all. And he d demonstrates this reality, this truth, by contrasting the two types of faith. He sketches for us a condemning faith, which we'll look at this morning. And secondly, a saving faith. That's our outline. A condemning faith and a saving faith, which we will take a look at next week. <clears throat> now, before we continue, let me provide for us the context to where we are in James. The theme of this book is the effects of true saving faith. And throughout his letter, James, provi James provides for us what true biblical faith looks like. He ensures that true faith, in fact, works. In chapter 1, he teaches that biblical faith endures trials. He teaches that biblical faith obeys God's word. In chapter 2, he teaches that Biblical faith does not show partiality in the church, regardless of one's status. And today, we come to our text where it says, Biblical faith manifests itself in good works. 
So let's begin by looking at the first type of faith found in the church, and that is a condemning faith, a condemning faith. James, in, in verses 14 through 19, looks at faith in the visible church uh, that does not save. He's saying that such a faith is prominent in the church. And those people are misled. And he's trying to guide us into understanding what such a faith looks like. That it will condemn you to hell. And as he makes this argument, as he shows to us what condemning faith looks like, we begin to see the qualities of such a faith. And the first quality that we see of a condemning faith is this. It expresses itself only in words. It expresses itself only in words in verses 14 through 17. Such a faith is professed with one's lips only. It is not expressed in one's life. And so it's not a genuine faith. To borrow James' words, as we'll see, it is worthless and it cannot save. Look at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Here James poses a few rhetorical questions to make his point. He first asks, what use is it, my brethren? That is, what advantage is there? What profit is there? Is there any benefit to such a faith? A faith that verbally professes, but has no works. Here he challenges his readers to consider what gain does such a faith have? And the implication is, there is no gain. There is no profit, no advantage to such a faith. The tense of the verb, where it says, has no works, indicates that this person who professes the faith continually shows no work. This is his habitual nature. This is what he is characterized as. This person is marked by continued absence of good deeds. This is how he lives. He is constantly devoid of good works, even though he professes to be a follower of Christ. In this passage, James does not specify the type of work he is referring to, but it is clear he's talking about righteous behavior that is conforming to his revealed word. He's referring to obedience, not necessarily work, works the law. We see that all throughout his letter as well. James then follows up with a second rhetorical question at the end of verse 14. He says, can that faith save him? He's asking, can that so-called faith that is devoid of any works Can that faith save him? The structure, the grammatical structure of the question calls for a negative answer. No. Such a faith, which only claims to have faith, there's no works produced, is no faith at all. It cannot save. The biblical sense of the word, it is a dead faith. Friends, a profession of faith devoid of works is an empty faith. It is devoid of obedience, of of righteous works. Such a faith cannot save you. It will not deliver you. And the verb to save here is not referring to deliverance from some earthly danger or trial. It does mean that in certain instances, but here in this context, it is referring to spiritual and eternal rescue. We see that in the context. He refers to that in verse 13. 
James is saying such a faith cannot deliver anyone from eternal judgment. Such a faith will have no advantage at the time of God's judgment. And that's because it's dead. It is without life. So the point is, dead faith merely expresses itself in words. There's no evidence in the life of the person aside from verbal expression of being a follower of Christ. And we see this in the rest of the New Testament. Let me give you a few verses. Jesus says, and he said to them in Mark 7, 6, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips. That is verbal proclamation in, in honoring Jesus, but in their hearts they are far apart from me. Titus 1.16, Paul says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Their actions betray their profession. John in 1 John 2.4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. There's many other verses like these. Again and again, we see in the New Testament that professing faith by itself does not save. It must be accompanied by good works, obedience to God's word, a desire to obey him, a desire to follow him, a desire to please him. And just to be clear, this is not to earn salvation. And that is by faith alone, in Christ alone. But good works provides evidence to the fact that you have biblical faith, that you have been regenerated, that you have been born again, that you have been transformed, that there is a difference in your life After conversion. That is the relationship between faith and works. That is the right relationship. You're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith produces good works. That's how we know and can tell if someone is genuine believer. Now, after making the point that faith without works cannot save in verse 14, James continues in verses 15 and 16 with, with giving us a hypothetical situation to really illustrate his point in verse 14. Look at verse 15. James writes, If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? The the question that James poses here is pretty much the same as he did in verse 14, but but a bit more Um, specific, more personal. He gives a concrete example here. You see in verse 14, he began with the phrase, what use is it? He says that again at the end of verse 16, what use is that? And so he's not making a new point. Rather, he's illustrating what he said in verse 14. He's illustrating what empty, dead faith looks like in practice, James is saying in the illustration, consider for a moment that a fellow believer in the church, indicated by brothers and sister here, consider that someone comes to you who is in need. He says that they are without clothing, clothing that they are 
poorly or insufficiently clothed, perhaps someone who does not have an outer garment to, to stay warm in the, in the winter conditions. They are inadequately dressed. And he adds that they are also in need of daily food. That is, they are consistently underfed. They are constantly falling short of the daily supply needed to sustain life and health. So he's painting a picture that this person is in desperate need. So what should the response be? He tells us the response of, of such a person who only proclaims faith. He says in verse 16, And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? <clears throat> the one of you here is, is referring to, again, a, a church member, one who professes faith verbally. And so this person sees his brother or sister in need, and their response is this, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. The phrase go in peace was a common Jewish blessing which really commended the person to to God. The idea is, may God bless you and give you peace. And the person adds also, be warmed and be filled. May the Lord meet your needs by keeping you warm, by keeping you filled in your time of need so that you are no longer hungry. Now this is, a pious response. Nothing is necessarily wrong with this response. It could also be a prayer. And so there's not anything wrong with what he is saying, he or she is saying. We should encourage one one another when we know that one of our brothers and sisters are in need. We should pray for them. But That's not the problem. The problem is what James says next. He says, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What we see is that this person expresses concern in words, but refuses to care for the obvious needs of the church member. The implication is they have things they can, that they can provide for this person in need, but they choose not to. They choose not to sacrifice their own resources, their time, their energy to help the believer in need. <clears throat> you see, it's all talk and no actions. You say, go in peace, be warmed and filled. In words only, there's no actions to support those words. See, these words are just religious jargon to cover up his lack of compassion and care and love for the believer. James responds to such a person, James' response to such a person is this, what good is that? What profit is that? What gain is that? What benefit is that? And the answer is there's no benefit whatsoever. It is worthless. It cannot save. It cannot deliver such a person. The point is what good are words if actions don't back it up? This is how dead faith responds, in mere words. And such a faith will not save you in the day of judgment. Again, just to keep in mind, the works are the evidence of true faith. The works don't save. But if you have true saving faith, it will itself in good works. 
is similar to what John says in 1 John 3.17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Answer is, it does not. The love of God does not abide in such a person's heart. Notice James' conclusion in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James has already said that such a faith is useless, it cannot save, and now he says that such a faith is dead. Not dormant, dead. Dead in the sense that it cannot save. In the same way, the words be warmed and filled is of no use. Such a faith by itself, devoid of good works, is useless. And it will not save you. It will not deliver you. Friends, I'd be remiss to ask you, does such a faith that we've looked at in verses 14 through 17, does that faith characterize your faith? Have you only made a profession of faith without seeing any evidence of good works in your life? Have you been born again? Have you been transformed since your conversion? Is your life different? Is there fruit, good fruit in your life? Is there a desire to know God's word? Is there a desire to Obey God's word? Do you have love for God? Do you desire to please God? Does God's love, does your love for God compel you to obey him? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Furthermore, do you have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Obviously, James just gave us one example of it. There's many examples we see in Scripture, in daily life, and how we can love one another. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have compassion for them in their time of need? Do you sacrifice your time and resources to help a brother or sister in need? Do you pray for them? I know at times we can say we'll pray for someone in need that we know, but then not really pray for them. Do you check up on them? Do you follow up on them to see how they're doing? Or is your faith only expressed in words like the man James is talking about? My encouragement to you this morning is that you would examine your life. See if there's good fruit that provides evidence to the fact that you possess the true biblical faith, a saving faith. Or is your faith dead with no signs of life? You know, sadly, there are going to be many on that day, that is the day of judgment, who will be shocked? Many will find out that their faith was not real. And their hearts will drop to the ground. Their faith 
was mere words or were mere words. Jesus himself said at the end of his famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he's addressing such people. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And this is Jesus' response. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, such people identify themselves with Christ They did not desire to obey his word. They did not desire to do his will. James is addressing such people in the church. This is not in the world. This is in the church who profess faith. One day, God will expose such people's faith. Those who merely profess it in, in words and not in actions. My prayer is that through the word of God, through his inspired word, the spirit would guide you to make it clear if you have a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't, my prayer is that he would you to turn to him in genuine faith. Now, before we continue, I want to briefly address uh, what James says in verse 17. Some have said that what James is essentially teaching here contradicts what Paul teaches. Paul teaches that one is justified, declared righteous by faith alone. But here we see James say that faith without works is dead. You cannot be saved by faith alone. However, when you consider the context of what Paul teaches, the context here, what James teaches, it is clear they are not contradicting one another. See, they're addressing two different things. Paul is talking about how one is saved. That is, through faith alone in Christ alone, he's talking about legal pronouncement of righteousness before the judge. James is addressing what true faith looks like. It produces works. Faith produces works. Good works. It is not the means of salvation. It is the product of genuine faith. So James is not saying that works saves, or work saves. Rather, it gives evidence to the fact that a person has saving faith. Paul says something similar. He says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So there's no conflict between the two of them, even though people try to create conflict. MacArthur has provided a helpful illustration of this. He writes, quote, They are not standing face-to-face confronting one another, as if they are enemies of one another, <clears throat> but are standing back-to-back fighting two common enemies, or two enemies. Paul, op- Paul opposes works righteousness, that is legalism. James opposes easy believism. Luther has a helpful quote. 
He writes, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Works accompanies it. Now, as we continue in verses 18 and 19, we see a second quality of such a faith, condemning faith. We have seen that such a faith is expressed merely in words. Secondly, such a faith, or those who proclaim such a faith, seeks to isolate itself or it from good works. It separates itself from good works. That is, it seeks to make a case that all you need to do is just believe. Whether there's works accompanied, doesn't matter. You just got to profess it. Verse 18, James anticipates a hypothetical objection to what he has said, and he, rate, and he begins to respond to it. Look at verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. With the use of the adversative but, John, uh, James, that is, is introducing a strong contrast to what is stated before. But someone may well say, that is, someone may come and tell you something different to what I have just said in verses 14 through 17. James anticipates this objection, and he begins to respond to it. He utilizes a common technique for debate here, so he can address what he anticipates. Now, before we move forward, I want to briefly mention that this verse is, is difficult to translate and interpret. If you consult various different translations, you'll see the difficulty with it. The question is, when James quotes his objector in this verse, where does the quotation end? We know where it begins, but where does it end? You see, in the original manuscript and the manuscripts that we have now, there's no punctuation. There's no quotes or quotation marks. And the translators have done us a good service to put that in for us, especially in the English translation, so that we can better understand it. And if you're reading from the NASB like I am, the translators have put the quotation mark at the end of verse 18, indicating that the entire verse is a quote of the objector. This means that James's response does not begin till verse 19. Uh, this is an interpretive decision of this translation. <clears throat> However, when you look at other translations like the ESV, the quote does not end at the end of the verse. Rather, it ends in the middle. After he says, you have faith and I have works. And I tend to agree with this Translation, because it does not make sense for the opponents to say, I will show you my faith by my works. See, this is precisely what James has been arguing against. So it is best to end the quotation in the middle, verse 18, instead of the end. Now, with that in mind, let's look at verse 18. James writes, but... But someone may well say, open quote, you have faith and I have works, end quote. And then James says, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. What the objector is saying, uh, the essence of the objection is really faith and works can be separated. You can have faith. Without works, it's fine. I can have faith without works or with works, and that's fine. Essentially, it's kind of like seeing, oh, this is when you consider spiritual gift. This is your spiritual gift. This is my spiritual gift. Oh, that works for you. It works for me. 
that it is okay to possess true faith without works. And we've seen already James has objected that. And friends, this belief is prevalent even today. That all you need is to just believe regardless of if there's any works. You see, they're separating faith from works. We see this today in the Lordship Salvation. That you can accept Christ as Savior, but not submit to Him as Lord. That you can be a Christian, but not a true disciple of Christ. That you can be a Christian and not be part of a church. That you can believe, but not necessarily have to obey. That you can profess, but not have any fruits. So this is the objection that he is anticipating. And so how does James respond? Responds. He says in verse 18, Show me your faith without the works. Show it to me. Prove it to me, display it, demonstrate it, reveal to me your faith without works. Can you truly know that someone is saved without works? The implication is you can't. There's no way to prove someone's faith without works. Faith isn't something tangible where you can just say, here, this is my faith. No. Faith is only seen by good works. You can't separate the two. So James is saying, show me with a clear understanding that no one can to argue against the objector who says, oh, I have faith and no works. That man does not have true biblical faith. The way we know someone has true faith is by their fruit. When you consider, say, for example, a fruit tree, how do you know what type of tree it is? By its fruit. You know an orange tree by the fact that it bears orange oranges. If an orange tree bears an apple, that's not an orange tree. Regardless of what someone may say, that's an apple tree. An apple tree that bears apples is an apple tree. You know it by the fruit it produces. In the same way, you know true faith by its good fruit. Without good fruit, you do not have the true biblical faith. It must be accompanied by it. And there's no other way to show it. There's no other way to demonstrate it. And that's why James says, In the end, I will show you my faith by my works, my good works. Because that's the only way to show someone's faith. It's the only way to demonstrate it. So the point is, you cannot have true saving faith without good works. Hopefully you get that point because I've repeated it again and again and again. And if your faith is that of the objector here, again, know that your faith is not genuine. It's not the biblical faith. In fact, James continues in verse 19 to say that such a faith, a faith without works, is that of the demons. You have a demonic faith. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Here, where James says you believe that God is one, it's, it's 
the confession we see in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 6, 4. This is the confession that the Jews made. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. If you confess this, it's good, it's right, it's true. But then he says, even the demons confess this. They profess this. They know God to be the one true and living God. And so if you profess the true God merely in words and not in actions, then you have the faith of a demon, of demons. And friends, that is not a good comparison. Then he adds that the demons believe and they shudder. You see, demons have orthodox theology. They believe in the one true God. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in Jesus as the Son of God. We see that in the Gospels, how they submit to him. They believe in the Holy Spirit. They believe that salvation is by faith alone. They will sign our doctrinal statement. They have sound theology. But they do not willingly serve God. They fall short of that. And because of that, they shudder, they fear, they tremble because they know full well that the day of judgment is coming and there is no hope for them. That God has prepared a special place for them where they will experience God's eternal wrath for their rebellion. And God has provided no provision for them. And so what James is saying here, if you have accurate theology, which is good, we should seek to have accurate theology. If you have sound doctrine, it is good. But... If your faith does not manifest itself in good works, you still do not have saving faith. You have a dead faith. You have a demonic faith. You have a condemning faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Friends, this is a sobering rebuke to the one who professes faith without works. The one who seeks to separate faith from works. This is a sobering rebuke to you. This passage is a call for self-examination. This passage is not for the one who believes that he's an unbeliever. No, this, is, this passage is for us in the church to examine our hearts to see if we possess the true faith. And we know that by the good works that that faith produces. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 17, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. In verse 20, he says, so then you will know them by, your, by their fruits. <clears throat> Let me ask you, which tree are you? Are you the one who produces good fruit? Or are you the one who produces bad fruit? Listen, you can fool those of us around you by saying the right things and maybe even externally living according to um, the religious requirements without really truly desiring to obey God. So you can fool us, but you can't fool God. He knows your heart. He knows if you are truly his. And the good news is, unlike the demons, if you profess a condemning faith, a faith that does not manifest itself in good works, 
you have an opportunity to be reconciled to God. The demons don't have that opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. God in his kindness has provided a way for you. That is through the gift of repentance and faith in Christ alone. And if you humble yourself, and if you put your faith in Christ alone as Lord and Savior, the Bible teaches that you will be saved. Your heart will be changed. You will be given a new heart. Your life will be transformed. And this is not perfection. That will not happen here. But a direction of your life will be different. A direction towards God. A desire to conform to Christ. And if you are truly saved, my friends, if you truly possess the gift of faith, you will without fail demonstrate it by your works. You will have works if you possess the true faith. You will produce good works. This morning, we have considered the first type of faith that is found in the church, in the visible church, and that is the condemning faith. Such a faith is expressed merely in words. Those who profess such a faith, faith seeks to separate Faith in works. We've seen that such a faith cannot save. There's only one biblical faith that saves, the saving faith. And we'll look at that next Sunday. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I just thank you for this time in your word. <clears throat> we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the salvation you have provided in Christ. And that true, through faith in Christ alone, that we can see evidence of that in our works. And thank you for that work in, in many of the people's lives here. That they see the evidence of true saving faith. They see the evidence to follow you, a desire to obey you, a desire to honor you, to glorify you. And I thank you for that work in their lives. I do pray that you would work in the lives of those who may be here that do not have a biblical faith. Rather, they have a condemning faith. I pray that you would expose that, make it clear, and draw them to you through your word. Thank you for this time. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.